Amen. You may be seated. And now please turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Chapter 16. And our text this morning will be Romans 16, verses 1 through 16. And I doubt that in any of these 16 verses we'll find an example of uh, something that any one of you here has ever considered a life verse. But... Nevertheless, this is the very word of God, so let's give careful attention to it. Romans 16, 1 through 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trephina and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this. Your word is breathed out by your Holy Spirit. It was written for our instruction. And so bless it to us and instruct us through it. For we pray boldly, because we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I trust that you all are regularly reading your Bibles, and you have a practice of reading the Scriptures, and I especially hope that you have a systematic way of doing it. I was talking with a brother this week and talking about reading plans, and um, the great thing about a reading plan, especially if it's one that includes the whole Bible, is that over the course of a plan, you're going to be sure to get a a full exposure to all of God's Word. You're going to get a steady diet of the full counsel of God, as we call it. 
Now, maybe you're one of these people who's, who's tried you know, to read through the Scriptures, but certain parts of them uh, are just tough. Certain parts of them are easy to skip. And I think among the most skipped or passed over passages in the Bible, uh, my guess is uh, ranking among them would be the book of Leviticus. And these genealogies that you come across all over the place, it's so easy to skip those. You know, I mean, what do they have to do with me? Uh, Long lists of names, many of them hard to pronounce, and they seem to have no relevance whatsoever to us in our Christian walk. Well, the book of Romans... We've come to the last chapter here, so this book, this letter is coming to a close, and the writer of the letter, the Apostle Paul, at this point, as you've seen quite obviously, is, is sending personal messages. The Apostle is sending personal messages to actual people in the church in Rome, people that Paul knows. Now remember, Paul hasn't been to this church before, he hasn't been to Rome before, but there are people in that church that he is familiar with. So he's sending greetings to those people. These are people he has labored alongside in many cases. These are people he cares about, people he loves in the Lord. There are, depending on how you count them, uh, nearly 30 individuals mentioned, 25 of them by name. And in addition to that, you heard that reference to a person's mother and then a reference to another person's sister. And in addition to that, you've got five distinct groups of people that are mentioned. Um, these are members of households that he doesn't name each individual by name, but he references the household. And in some cases, these might be references, or in some cases, they're pretty clearly references to house churches. In other words, you had the church in Rome, but the church in Rome in that big city was, uh, was made up of smaller congregations, and many of them met in the homes of Christians. And for some reason, the Holy Spirit ordained that these greetings be included in Paul's Spirit-inspired letter to the church in Rome. This letter that's so full of rich instruction uh, and, and encouragement, powerful doctrine. But the Holy Spirit determined that these greetings would be included. Why? You might be thinking, yeah, I get it. This is God's word. Um, But what does this have to do with me? How can I apply this text? Well, the Holy Spirit ordained these greetings be included to show us that the church of Jesus Christ is a community characterized by genuine love, high esteem, and deeply rooted unity. That's what I hope we'll learn from this list of names and this long list of greetings. The Church of Jesus Christ is a community characterized by genuine love, high esteem, and deeply rooted unity. So the first thing I want us to to take a look at together is just the, the commendations and the greetings themselves. Because as Paul sends these greetings... 
And as he commends people for their hard work in the Lord, what we see is that Paul loved these people. He had appreciation for them. He held them in high esteem. The lead-off commendation is to this uh, woman by the name of Phoebe. She's featured in verses 1 and 2. I think it's very likely, most scholars assume, that Phoebe was probably going to be the one who's going to take this letter that Paul had written and be the courier to take it to Rome and to deliver it to the saints that were there. Not by herself, of course. You'd need to travel with, with uh, companions and protectors. But uh, Phoebe is the one, probably, who's been entrusted with the letter. That's why he doesn't greet Phoebe. Phoebe's right there with him. But he commends Phoebe. And so Paul requests that when she arrives in Rome with this letter, that the church in Rome welcome her. And he gives her sort of a reference, we could say, kind of a, um, uh, a testimonial to her character, so that when Phoebe showed up at the church in Rome, the church in Rome could be assured that she's really one of us, and they could welcome her, they could receive her, and they could freely and generously help her with whatever she needed. That was common in the Old Testament, or excuse me, in the, in the first century church, because as churches were springing up all over the Mediterranean world, People would travel from place to place at times, and they might, obviously, if they were Christians, they would want to go and find the other believers and meet with them and have fellowship with them. But those believers wouldn't necessarily uh, have certainty that this person who walked in the door was really the real deal. How, do we, how would they know that this wasn't an infiltrator of some kind? And so what would happen is when Christians traveled from one place to another and they were going to visit another church, the church from which they were being sent would write a letter saying, greetings from your brothers and sisters in wherever. This is Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Welcome them. They're one of us. And so that's what's going on here. Paul is commending Phoebe to the church in Rome because she's going there, she's carrying his letter in all likelihood, and she needs that testimonial, she needs that reference. And uh, some people speculate, and I think it's fair to assume, that Phoebe may well have had other business in Rome. And so Paul asks the church in Rome to help her in whatever she has need of, you see. And she was probably a woman of means. Paul says in verse 2 that she's been a patron of many. In other words, out of her own resources, out of her own wealth, Phoebe had supported other Christians, other missionaries who had gone out with the gospel. And Paul says, even I myself have, uh, she's been a patron of, 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 to me as well, he says. So Phoebe was a supporter. She provided, in other words, to put it in, in modern terms, she had provided missionary support for the Apostle Paul and for a number of other people too. Well then, after Phoebe, we come to a couple, verse 3, names as Prisca and Aquila. Now, these are the same people that we met uh, in Acts chapter 18. If you've read the book of Acts, Paul encounters this same couple in that chapter. These were the ones, you remember, who were tent makers by trade, which happened to be what Paul's trade was. And so Paul naturally um, kind of gravitated towards them, and they worked together in Corinth. That's where Paul met them, in Corinth, which is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 
when Paul's sending greetings from the church or to the church in Corinth, he sends greetings to Priscilla and Aquila because that's where they were. They had also traveled with Paul. Here's a really interesting thing, and this is where you know sort of the real world, the real life. Uh, aspect of so much of what we read in scripture kind of comes together, kind of comes into focus because uh, in, if you look at Acts chapter 18 we find out that when Paul left Corinth and he went to travel to continue on in his missionary journeys, Priscilla and Aquila went with him and he ended up in a place called Sencrea that's the place where Paul got his hair cut because he was under a vow Sencrea ring a bell? Or remember that's where Phoebe is a servant Verse 1 of our text, Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencrea. So when Paul, along with Priscilla and Aquila, show up in Sencrea and they find the brothers and sisters there, Phoebe was there. So these people all knew each other. Um, It was also Priscilla and Aquila, she's called Prisca here. And actually, anytime Paul mentions her in, in his letters, he refers to her as Prisca when she's mentioned in other, well, in the book of Acts, as Luke pens that, that narrative, he calls her Priscilla. It's the same person. It's just a different, uh, it's, a, it's a variation on the same name. Just like many of us have variations on our names, and people call us different things. But this pair were very mature Christians, and they came across a guy by the name of Apollos, if you know that story. And Apollos was, was strong. He was able in the word of God and he was a good orator and he spoke eloquently and proclaimed the, um, the gospel. And then Priscilla and Aquila came alongside because they realized he was gifted. Uh, he, was, he was a gifted minister of the word, but he needed some instruction. And so they helped to disciple Apollos. And then in the very last letter, as far as we know, the very last letter that Paul ever wrote, um, very near to the time of his death, he's writing to Timothy. And in the end of Second Timothy, when he's sending a couple of greetings, who does he greet? Prisca and Aquila. So that's who those people are. Well, going on from there and through the rest of the text, we, we run into a little bit uh, of uh, frustration, perhaps, because you've got... 20 names in this text that are only mentioned in this text in the whole New Testament. Names of people we don't hear about anywhere else in the Bible. We don't have any other information about them. But there are some extra-biblical sources that, that may, it's not conclusive, but, but may refer to some of these. For example, uh, you, you remember the uh, reference to the family of Narcissus, in some extra-biblical historical accounts from the first century and the second century, uh, there was a high-ranking official in the, or or high-ranking servant in the court of Caesar Claudius. Claudius, remember, is the one who made the decree that all the Jews had to leave Rome. That Claudius, the Caesar, the, the, the Roman emperor, had a high-ranking, prominent servant by the name of Narcissus. And there are people who think that this household of Narcissus is the household of that man. We don't know. 
And then we can only speculate about a few of the other personalities. It's always interesting to hear what one commentator says and then compare that to what the next commentator says. I read one who, um, who thinks there's a case to be made that the Mary mentioned in verse 6 may well be the mother of Jesus. And it's possible. Um, but then I read another commentator who said, it is absolutely certain that this is not Mary, uh, uh, the mother of Jesus. So it's anybody's guess, perhaps. Mary is a pretty common name, even in the Bible. Mary, as we see it in our Bibles, is an English variant of the Hebrew name Miriam. So Moses' sister, the sister of Moses and Aaron, her name would be Mary to us, I suppose. But there is, if this Mary that we read about in Romans 16 is not a Mary we encounter anywhere else, there are like nine Marys mentioned, nine distinct Marys uh, in the New Testament. Verse 7 mentions Unia. Some people think this is the same person as Joanna from Luke chapter 8, verse 3. And then again in chapter 24, verse 10, who is a witness to the resurrection of Christ. And then Rufus, verse 13. In, in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, remember Jesus is carrying his cross to his crucifixion. He's carrying his cross to Golgotha. He's already been beaten. He's already been um, scourged by the Romans. He's weakened. He's tremendous blood loss, no doubt. And here he is trying to carry his cross. And um, so the, the, the Roman soldiers just grab a man out of the crowd to carry the cross for him the rest of the way. That man's name was Simon. He was from Cyrene. And Mark specifically mentions that this guy, Simon of Cyrene, had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And here you've got the name Rufus. Was it the same? Uh, very possibly. And, and if so, then that might explain why there's, no other necess- necess- there's not necessarily any other reason why Mark, when he wrote his gospel, would mention Rufus unless this was the son of the guy who carried the cross of Jesus. So it's not spelled out for us, but it's possible. Well, all these commendations and greetings really just add up to teach us that Paul loved these people, that he appreciated them. And that characterizes the church of Jesus Christ. It's a community of love and high esteem. Paul demonstrates here his love and appreciation for the brethren. And that kind of flows into the next point. Because as he mentions people and singles them out for greetings, and as he expresses appreciation for their labors for the sake of the gospel, he gives extensive acknowledgement of women in this passage. Easily one-third of the people mentioned in this text by name were women. People singled out, because then you've got a mother and a sister who are nameless in the text, but he mentions them. One-third of all these people that Paul addresses specifically were women. He begins with that very strong commendation of the woman Phoebe. Then he mentions Prisca along with her husband, and he describes them both, not just Apollos, but, but Prisca too, as his fellow workers. The Mary, he mentions, whoever she is, he says, she worked hard. And if you look at verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, workers in the Lord, Trophina and Trifosa, greet the beloved Persis. All three of those are women. 
And he expresses appreciation for the mother of Rufus in verse 13. And he gives a shout out to somebody's sister. So what we see is Paul greatly appreciated the work of women in the church. And I think that's really noteworthy in view of all the criticism that Paul gets and all the accusations that he's a chauvinist or something like that. In, just to see, this wasn't exclusive to the book of Romans. Turn with me to Philippians for just a moment. Philippians chapter 4. The final chapter of Philippians, it starts out with an exhortation to stand firm, and then he calls out these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, and he, he admonishes them to agree in the Lord. And then he says in verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. And yet people will say, the Apostle Paul is a chauvinist, People have accused our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, of being patriarchal, and they mean that in a a very negative and pejorative sense, being patriarchal because in the PCA, uh, we do not ordain women to the offices of elder or deacon. And all the, the hate that's aimed at Paul is largely because much of the New Testament basis against ordination of women comes from the pen of Paul. So, for instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, he says pretty explicitly, women are not to teach men or to exercise authority over men. In the church, of course, that's what he's talking about. Women are not to teach men or exercise authority over a man in the church of Christ. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, you've got these lists of qualifications for the office of elder. And in those, um, in most of our English Bibles, it says that an elder has to be the husband of one wife. And what the Greek literally says is, in order to be an elder, you have to be a one-woman man. And so there are these pretty specific requirements, along with a number of other biblically rooted principles. Uh, Our denomination will not uh, ordain a woman to the office of deacon or to the office of elder and therefore to the office of pastor. And that's not in any way, not in the least way, intended in any way to disparage women. But it's simply a desire to follow the principles found in Scripture. Now I bring that up because in verse 1 of our text... That verse is sometimes used to argue in favor of deaconesses in the church because uh, when it says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, the Greek word there is diakonon, which is the feminine form of deacon. And so people will point to that, they'll look at the Greek and they'll say, see, Phoebe was a deaconess. And so we ought to have deaconesses as an office in their church. Um, here's, here's how we answer that, though. Diakonon is the feminine of diakonos. The word just basically means servant. That is the meaning of the word. And 
That word, diakonos, in its various forms, occurs in the New Testament 27 times. And of all those times, there are only three in which the word, as it's used in our New Testament uh, scriptures, refers specifically to the office of deacon. In all other cases, it's just saying servant in the non-technical, non-office-holding sense. So, for instance, you'll recognize these words. Matthew 23, 11. Jesus told his disciples, the greatest among you must be your what? Your servant. What the Greek says is, the greatest among you must be your deacon. Jesus Christ himself is even referred to as a deacon in Romans 15, 8. Since we're in Romans, turn back there. Romans 15, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a deacon to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Paul himself is referred to as a deacon multiple times. If you're taking notes, you can just jot down 1 Corinthians 3, 5. Paul calls himself a deacon. He didn't hold the office of deacon, but he's referring to himself as a servant. So it's only in three passages that diakonos clearly is used in the technical sense. And the same is true, for example, of other words like apostle. Apostle is just somebody who's sent. And so there's a capital A technical sense in which the word apostle is used. There were 12 apostles of the Lamb. But anytime the church sent someone out to do something, they could be referred to as an apostle. So you see the point. And the same principle applies to deacon. So Romans 16.1 is not indicating that Phoebe held the office of deacon. But just consider the text. How many women Paul expresses appreciation for? How many of them he greets? So I think we would have to admit Paul was no chauvinist. Paul held women in high regard, just as we do here at First Scots. And I think throughout the PCA. Well, finally, we see a unity of the church. And that unity in the church is, is on the basis of one thing and one thing only. It's on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was a ruling elder in a PCA church years ago in another place, and we had small groups in that church, and each small group was, uh, was assigned to an elder in the church. And so we would have uh, usually meetings, you know, small group meetings on a monthly basis. And these groups were not organized geographically. They weren't organized demographically. They were, in fact, very intentionally organized so that there would be as little in common among the people in the groups as possible. So you had some families, you had some singles, you had some older people, you had some younger people, you had some professionals, you had some blue-collar people. These groups were designed to be as diverse as we could make them. And we told people that that was our intent. And so we had recently, they shuffled the groups every several years, and we had just gotten a new group, and after a few months, one of the young ladies in, in my group came to me and said, you know, I really enjoy the elder groups and, and I love the folks and everything, but, you know, I don't really have much in common with any of them. I said, that's the point. These groups were designed to be diverse so that the one thing we would have in common would be Christ. And we could relate on that basis and learn to dwell together and to 
love one another on that basis. This list of men and women in Romans 16 illustrates the diversity of the church. And yet, in spite of their diversity, they were united. And the one thing they had in common was the single most important thing of all, Christ. Because Romans 16 is addressed to men and to women. It's addressed to people who are pretty obviously wealthy and to people who are probably poor, some of them servants. You had slave and free in this church and in this list of recipients of the letter. And those are all things that can tend to divide people. But let's not overlook the single most divisive demographic possible, especially in the first century church. And that was the demographic of Jew and Gentile. You know, there may be division in our culture over certain things and so certain demographics, but I don't think Americans can fathom the animosity and the mutual dislike between Jews and Gentiles in the first century Mediterranean world. I don't think we can really get a grip on it. And yet, they were all one church. In the church in Rome, Jews and Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ, dwelling together, worshiping together, loving one another. It's fascinating. It's amazing. I think one great example of it is if you go back to verses 3 and 4 and you read about Prisca and Aquila, and it says, with reference to them, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. All, Paul says, all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks to Prisca and Aquila, and guess what? They were Jews. And yet these Gentile churches loved them, and they loved those Gentile churches. It's, it's kind of like in Acts chapter 6, where they realize, you know, we, we need to create, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, we need to institute this office that Christ has ordained for his church, this office of deacon, because there were, there were certain uh, human needs that the church was seeking to meet, but the apostles needed to be busy about the preaching and ministry of the word. And so they, they created this office, they, they appointed seven men, to become deacons in the church. We understand Acts chapter 6 is the establishment of the office of deacon. And the majority of them were Gentile people. The vast majority, possibly all of them, were, they, they were Jews, of course. They had become Jews by profession of faith. They had, but they were, they were not Jews ethnically. They were Gentile people. in the church in Jerusalem. You see? So despite any and every sociological difference, the church is a community. Romans 1, verse 16, speaks of the gospel, and it says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 16, chapter 16, 
shows us that the gospel has the power to unify people, to bring them together. Across any and every demographic, there is no organization on earth that can do that. There is no power on earth that can do that. And I would say there is no organization on earth that is more diverse than the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll give you three examples, just anecdotal examples to prove the point. Covenant Fellowship Church of Stuttgart, Germany. That's the church that God sent me and my family to plant back in 2012. After we had been meeting for worship for a period of years, you could walk into that church on any given Lord's Day, take a snapshot of the congregation, and I, I'm not exaggerating, on any given Sunday, you'd take a picture of that gathering and you would have 10 or more nations represented in that one congregation. Over the course of the history, of, or at least of the seven years that we were there, people from almost two dozen nations had come in and out our doors representing five continents. What brought that array of people to this little tiny struggling church plant in a major city in Germany? It was Christ. Nothing else could do that. Example number two. You've maybe read the book or seen the movie Through Gates of Splendor. It's about the missionaries including Jim Elliott, uh, who were ministering to a, to a primitive and very violent tribe in South America. And Jim Elliott and his four companions were murdered by the tribesmen. But this, this account tells the story of a man by the name of Steve Saint, who was the son of one of the slain missionaries, and he was reconciled to the man who murdered his father, and he even became like a son to that man. And that man became like a second father to him. The very man who killed his earthly father. Where else does that happen except in the church of Jesus Christ? Finally, think about prisoners. I heard a wonderful story. Someone relating the fruit of their prison ministry. And he tells the story about these two inmates. Well, he tells the story about this really, really thriving prison ministry that he had that was bringing in dozens of inmates. And lives were being transformed. But there were these two particular inmates that are a striking example of the unifying power of the gospel. Because one of them had been a member, when he, before he was incarcerated, he was a member and a leader in a white supremacist group the other was a leader of the local chapter of the Black Panthers. They both came to Jesus Christ, and now they are best friends. And they love each other as brothers in Christ. That doesn't happen anywhere else except in the gospel. There's no other social group, no other organization, no other philosophy, no other religion that can do it, that can bring people together like that. Only Christ. And isn't that what Jesus prayed would happen? On that night in which he was betrayed, and he gave us the institution of the Lord's Supper, and he observed the Passover with his disciples for the last time, what he so earnestly wanted to do, and then that night before they got up and left, and Jesus went on to his suffering, to his death, he prayed. What did he pray? You can read his prayer in John 17. We call it his high priestly prayer. And in that prayer... Jesus said, Holy Father, 
Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. God is answering his son's prayer. Now, of course, we're not perfectly one. We're fallen people in a fallen world, and yes, there's strife in the church, but the power of God is fully on display. The power of Christ is fully on display in the unity of his church. And so, brothers and sisters, please pray for the peace and the purity of the church for the sake of Christ's honor and glory. And you can pray that prayer in faith. You can pray that prayer confidently because the one who has power to unite sinners to God can certainly bring together all of his children in unity through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray that he would do that. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for its transforming power. Thank you that it brings people out of darkness into light. Thank you that it brings people out of spiritual death and quickens them. And thank you for that work you've been doing in us. And so we pray along with Christ that you would keep us in your name and that we would be 